section sixteen of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter seven the queen's marriage part two these were not auspicious incidents to prelude the royal marriage there can be no doubt that for a time the queen still more than the prince felt their influence keenly the prince showed remarkable good sense and appreciation of the condition of political arrangements in england and readily comprehended that there was nothing personal to himself in any objections which the house of commons might have made to the proposals of the ministry the question of precedence was very easily settled when it came to be discussed in reasonable fashion although it was not until many years after eighteen fifty seven that the title of prince consort was given to the husband of the queen a few months after the marriage a bill was passed providing for a regency in the possible event of the death of the queen leaving issue with the entire concurrence of the leaders of the opposition who were consulted this time prince albert was named regent following the precedent which had been adopted in the instance of the princess charlotte and prince leopold the duke of sussex uncle of the queen alone dissented in the house of lords and recorded his protest against the proposal the passing of this bill was naturally regarded as of much importance to prince albert it gave him to some extent the status in the country which he had not had before it also proved that the prince himself had risen in the estimation of the tory party during the few months that elapsed since the debates on the annuity and the question of precedence no one could have started with a more resolute determination to stand clear of party politics than prince albert he accepted at once his position as the husband of the queen of a constitutional country his own idea of his duty was that he should be the private secretary and unofficial counsellor of the queen to this purpose he devoted himself unswervingly outside that part of his duties he constituted himself a sort of minister without portfolio of art and education he took an interest and often a leading part in all projects and movements relating to the spread of education the culture of art and the promotion of industrial science yet it was long before he was thoroughly understood by the country it was long before he became in any degree popular and it may be doubted whether he ever was thoroughly and generally popular not perhaps until his untimely death did the country find out how entirely disinterested and faithful his life had been and how he had made the discharge of duty his business and his task his character was one which is liable to be regarded by ordinary observers as possessing none but negative virtues he was thought to be cold formal and apathetic his manners were somewhat shy and constrained except when he was in the company of those he loved and then he commonly relaxed into a kind of boyish freedom and joyousness but to the public in general he seemed formal and chilling it is not only mr pendennis who conceals his gentleness under a shy and pompous demeanour with all his ability his anxiety to learn his capacity for patient study and his willingness to welcome new ideas he never perhaps quite understood the genius of the english political system his faithful friend and counsellor baron stockmar 
was not the man best calculated to set him right on this subject both were far too eager to find in the english constitution a piece of symmetrical mechanism or to treat it as a written code from which one might take extracts or construct summaries for constant reference and guidance but this was not in the beginning the cause of any coldness toward the prince on the part of the english public prince albert had not the ways of an englishman and the tendency of englishmen then as now was to assume that to have manners other than those of an englishman was to be so far unworthy of confidence he was not made to shine in commonplace society he could talk admirably about something but he had not the gift of talking about nothing and probably would not have cared much to cultivate such a faculty he was fond of suggesting small innovations and improvements in established systems to the annoyance of men with set ideas who liked their own ways best thus it happened that he remained for many years if not exactly unappreciated yet not thoroughly appreciated and that a considerable and very influential section of society was always ready to cavil at what he said and find motive for suspicion in most things that he did perhaps he was best understood and most cordially appreciated among the poorer classes of his wife's subjects he found also more cordial approval generally among the radicals than among the tories or even the whigs one reform which prince albert worked earnestly to bring about was the abolition of duelling in the army and the substitution of some system of courts of honourable arbitration to supersede the barbaric recourse to the decision of weapons he did not succeed in having his courts of honour established there was something too fanciful in the scheme to attract the authorities of our two services and there were undoubtedly many practical difficulties in the way of making such a system effective but he succeeded so far that he induced the duke of wellington and the heads of the services to turn their attention very seriously to the subject and to use all influence in their power for the purpose of discouraging and discrediting the odious practice of the duel it is carrying courtly politeness too far to attribute the total disappearance of the duelling system as one biographer seems inclined to do to the personal efforts of prince albert it is enough to his honour that he did his best and that the best was a substantial contribution towards so great an object but nothing can testify more strikingly to the rapid growth of a genuine civilization in queen victoria's reign than the utter discontinuance of the duelling system when the queen came to the throne and for years after it was still in full force the duel plays a conspicuous part in the fiction and the drama of the sovereign's earlier years it was a common incident of all political controversies it was an episode of most contested elections it was often resorted to for the purpose of deciding the right or wrong of a half-drunken quarrel over a card-table it formed as common a theme of gossip as an elopement or a bankruptcy most of the eminent statesmen who were prominent in the earlier part of the queen's reign had fought duels peel and o'connell had made arrangements for a meeting mr disraeli had challenged o'connell or any of the sons of o'connell the great agitator himself had killed his man in a duel mr roebuck had gone out mr cobden at a much later period had been visited with a challenge and had had the good sense and the moral courage to laugh at it 
at the present hour a duel in england would seem as absurd and barbarous an anachronism as an ordeal by touch or a witch-burning many years have passed since a duel was last talked of in parliament and then it was only the subject of a reprobation that had some work to do to keep its countenance while administering the proper rebuke but it was not the influence of any one man or even any class of men that brought about in so short a time this striking change in the tone of public feeling and morality the change was part of the growth of education and of civilization of the strengthening and broadening influence of the press the platform the cheap book the pulpit and the less restricted intercourse of classes this is perhaps as suitable a place as any other to introduce some notice of the attempts that were made from time to time upon the life of the queen it is proper to say something of them although not one possessed the slightest political importance or could be said to illustrate anything more than sheer lunacy or that morbid vanity and thirst for notoriety that is nearly akin to genuine madness the first attempt was made on june tenth eighteen forty by edward oxford a pot-boy of seventeen who fired two shots at the queen as she was driving up constitution hill with prince albert oxford fired both shots deliberately enough but happily missed in each case he proved to have been an absurd creature half crazy with a longing to consider himself a political prisoner and to be talked of when he was tried the jury pronounced him insane and he was ordered to be kept in a lunatic asylum during her majesty's pleasure the trial completely dissipated some wild alarms that were felt founded chiefly on absurd papers in oxford's possession about a tremendous secret society called young england having among its other objects the assassination of royal personages it is not an uninteresting illustration of the condition of public feeling that some of the irish catholic papers in seeming good faith denounced oxford as an agent of the duke of cumberland and the orangemen and declared that the object was to assassinate the queen and put the duke on the throne the trial showed that oxford was the agent of nobody and was impelled by nothing but his own crack-brained love of notoriety the finding of the jury was evidently something of a compromise for it is very doubtful whether the boy was insane in the medical sense and whether he was fairly to be held irresponsible for his actions but it was felt perhaps that the wisest course was to treat him as a madman and the result did not prove unsatisfactory mr theodore martin in his life of the prince consort expresses a different opinion he thinks it would have been well if oxford had been dealt with as guilty in the ordinary way the best commentary he says on the lenity thus shown was pronounced by oxford himself on being told of the similar attempts of francis and bean in eighteen forty two when he declared that if he had been hanged there would have been no more shooting at the queen it may be reasonably doubted whether the authority of oxford as to the general influence of criminal legislation is very valuable against the philosophic opinion of the half-crazy young potboy on which mr martin places so much reliance may be set the fact that in other countries where attempts on the life of the sovereign have been punished by the stern award of death it has not been found that the execution of one fanatic was a safe protection against the murderous fanaticism of another on may thirtieth eighteen forty two 
a man named john francis son of a machinist in drury lane fired a pistol at the queen as she was driving down constitution hill on the very spot where oxford's attempt was made this was a somewhat serious attempt for francis was not more than a few feet from the carriage which fortunately was driving at a very rapid rate the queen showed great composure she was in some measure prepared for the attempt for it seems certain that the same man had on the previous evening presented a pistol at the royal carriage although he did not then fire it francis was arrested and put on trial he was only twenty-two years of age and although at first he endeavoured to brazen it out and put on a sort of melodramatic regicide aspect yet when the sentence of death for high treason was passed on him he fell into a swoon and was carried insensible from the court the sentence was not carried into effect it was not certain whether the pistol was loaded at all and whether the whole performance was not a mere piece of brutal play-acting done out of a longing to be notorious her majesty herself was anxious that the death sentence should not be carried into effect and it was finally commuted to one of transportation for life the very day after this mitigation of punishment became publicly known another attempt was made by a hunchbacked lad named bean as the queen was passing from buckingham palace to the chapel royal bean presented a pistol at her carriage but did not succeed in firing it before his hand was seized by a prompt and courageous boy who was standing near the pistol was found to be loaded with powder paper closely rammed down and some scraps of a clay pipe it may be asked whether the argument of mr martin is not fully borne out by this occurrence and whether the fact of bean's attempt having been made on the day after the commutation of the capital sentence in the case of francis is not evidence that the leniency in the former instance was the cause of the attempt made in the latter but it was made clear and the fact is recorded on the authority of prince albert himself that bean had announced his determination to make the attempt several days before the sentence of francis was commuted and while francis was actually lying under sentence of death with regard to francis himself the prince was clearly of opinion that to carry out the capital sentence would have been nothing less than a judicial murder as it is essential that the act should be committed with intent to kill or wound and in francis's case to all appearance this was not the fact or at least it was open to grave doubt in this calm and wise way did the husband of the queen who had always shared with her whatever of danger there might be in the attempts argue as to the manner in which they ought to be dealt with the ambition which most or all of the miscreants who thus disturbed the queen and the country was that of the mountebank rather than of the assassin the queen herself showed how thoroughly she understood the significance of all that had happened when she declared according to mr martin that she expected a repetition of the attempts on her life so long as the law remained unaltered by which they could be dealt with only as acts of high treason the seeming dignity of martyrdom had something fascinating in it to morbid vanity or crazed fanaticism while on the other hand it was almost certain that the martyr's penalty would not in the end be inflicted a very appropriate change in the law was effected by which a punishment at once sharp and degrading was provided even for mere mountebank attempts against the queen a punishment which was certain to be inflicted 
a bill was introduced by sir robert peel making such attempts punishable by transportation for seven years or by imprisonment for a term not exceeding three years the culprit to be publicly or privately whipped as often and in such manner as the court shall direct not exceeding thrice bean was convicted under this act and sentenced to eighteen months imprisonment in millbank penitentiary this did not however conclude the attacks on the queen an irish bricklayer named hamilton fired a pistol charged only with powder at her majesty on constitution hill on may nineteenth eighteen forty nine and was sentenced to seven years transportation a man named robert pate once a lieutenant of hussars struck her majesty on the face with a stick as she was leaving the duke of cambridge's residence in her carriage on may twenty seventh eighteen fifty this man was sentenced to seven years transportation but the judge paid so much attention to the plea of insanity set up on his behalf as to omit from his punishment the whipping which might have been ordered finally on february twenty ninth eighteen seventy two a lad of seventeen named arthur o'connor presented a pistol at the queen as she was entering buckingham palace after a drive the pistol however proved to be unloaded an antique and useless or harmless weapon with a flint lock which was broken and in the barrel a piece of greasy red rag the wretched lad held a paper in one hand which was found to be some sort of petition on behalf of the fenian prisoners when he came up for trial a plea of insanity was put in on his behalf but he did not seem to be insane in the sense of being irresponsible for his actions or incapable of understanding the penalty they involved and he was sentenced to twelve months imprisonment and a whipping we have hurried over many years for the purpose of completing this painful and ludicrous catalogue of the attempts made against the queen it will be seen that in not a single instance was there the slightest political significance to be attached to them even in our own softened and civilized time it sometimes happens that an attempt is made on the life of a sovereign which however we may condemn and reprobate it on moral grounds yet does seem to bear a distinct political meaning and to show that there are fanatical minds still burning under some sense of national or personal wrong but in the various attacks which were made on queen victoria nothing of the kind was even pretended there was no opportunity for any vaporing about brutus and charlotte corday the impulse where it was not that of sheer insanity was of kin to the vulgar love of notoriety in certain minds which sets on those whom it pervades to mutilate noble works of art and scrawl their autographs on the marble of immortal monuments there was a great deal of wisdom shown in not dealing too severely with most of these offences and in not treating them too much au sérieux prince albert himself said that the vindictive feeling of the common people would be a thousand times more dangerous than the madness of individuals there was not indeed the slightest danger at any time that the common people of england could be wrought up to any sympathy with assassination nor was this what prince albert meant but the queen and her husband were yet new to power and the people had not quite lost all memory of sovereigns who well-meaning enough had yet scarcely understood constitutional government and there were wild rumours of reaction this way and revolution that way 
it might have fomented a feeling of distrust and dissatisfaction if the people had seen any disposition on the part of those in authority to strain the criminal law for the sake of enforcing a death penalty against creatures like oxford and bean the most alarming and unnerving of all dangers to a ruler is that of assassination even the best and most blameless sovereign is not wholly secure against it the hand of oxford might have killed the queen perhaps however the best protection a sovereign can have is not to exaggerate the danger there is no safety in mere severity of punishment where the attempt is serious and desperate it is that of a fanaticism which holds its life in its hand and is not to be deterred by fear of death the tortures of ravillac did not deter damiens the birch in the case of bean and o'connor may effectively discountenance enterprises which are born of the montebanks and not the fanatics spirit End of section sixteen